When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist as Wellington Month continues. Today I am joined by Will Fletcher, a Napoleonicist regular in many respects, having looked at Napoleon's way of waging war, it was the logical thing to do to have him back to discuss Wellington's Warcraft. Will is a lecturer at King's College London and at the Staff College at Shrivenham and has a PhD in this period, looking particularly at things to do with the Commissariat Department. I always get these wrong. Uh, so court, you've looked... Quartermaster General's Department. Quartermaster General's Department. I mean, that's, that's an embarrassing <laughs> failure in itself, but you know what? I'm going to leave this in the final edit just to show how much of a fool I am. Um, but hopefully that's going to get turned into a book. The point is, Will knows his eggs. It's great to have him back on. Will, how are you doing? Yeah, very good. Uh, thanks, Zach, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. Um, great to be back and to, to look at the other side of the coin um, and look at Wellington rather than Napoleon, um, and and see what his way of waging war was. Absolutely. It's an interesting point of comparison, isn't it? And perhaps that's kind of what we'll come to at the end in terms of weighing the two up. But before we look at Wellington's methods, let's discuss the nature of the army under his command. This is a very different type of setup to what Napoleon has at his disposal. So how is the British army kind of formulated in this period? Yeah, no, I think that's um, a fair comment in terms of um, the, the French army compared to the British army. And I think 
a lot of that obviously has to do with um, the, the nature of uh, Britain at the time, um, very much a maritime power, um, and also historically um, so. And so obviously Wellington is, is dealing with a much smaller army. Um, also there's sort of, there is a very much a hangover from the, the English civil wars in terms of um, limiting the size of the standing army. Um, and also just the, the practicality of Britain being a smaller nation. So just in sort of raw numbers terms, Wellington is dealing um, with a different um, type of military force, um, much smaller um, standing army than um, Napoleon. And obviously the French uh, revolution has meant um, conscription in the French army and Napoleon inherits this um, system um, and the sort of levy on mass means that uh, Napoleon can draw on more and more um, soldiers throughout the period um, and perhaps has a bit of a different outlook on uh, the value of uh, common soldiers' lives as a result, um, knowing that there are um, more potentially available to him. Um, and I think that really leads to the, the key difference between Wellington and Napoleon in, in their relationship with um, the armies that they're, they're, they're commanding is that Wellington is commanding a British army, um, but one of many that are deployed around the world, whereas Napoleon is commanding the French army in terms of he is um, you know, commander-in-chief of the overall um, French um, empire and the French armies, um, as well as being a field commander himself um, of you know, one of those armies. And so and there's a, a major difference there in terms of the relationship between Wellington and Napoleon and their armies in the sense that, as I say, yeah, Napoleon's commanding the army um, completely, whereas Wellington is commanding a British army um, rather than the British army overall, um, if that makes sense. It does. It's a really interesting distinction that you pick up there in terms of conscription because there's a kind of a system of conscription towards in terms of drafting people into the militia, isn't there? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of a ballot-based system that, that's focused on there. But beyond that, you know, the militia is just for home defence. They try to encourage people to then go from the militia into the regular army, but there's a bounty process. And that raises all kinds of interesting questions about motivation. Um, because the argument can be made that the French army, the, you're, you're conscripting citizens of France, and that's an important kind of distinction in the sense that these people have certain rights, whereas the rank and file, they certainly don't have the, the franchise, so you know, you, you've got far less in terms of rights, and yet both are able to give as good as they get on the battlefield. And ultimately, it's the British that invariably win out during this period. So what kind of impact do you think these different styles have on motivation and discipline? Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd probably go towards the side of things that is actually quite similar in the sense of, and also throughout military history, that commanders or, or leaders have to motivate their soldiers. Um, and clearly, as you mentioned, there is, there is a distinction, um, and especially at the French Revolution, um, there is that sort of idea that the common soldier has an invested interest um, himself. But, but both at the end of the day are sort of fighting um, for various motivations. And one of the main ones is just sort of survival uh, when they find themselves in this situation. Um, you know, a British or a French soldier in the middle of Spain, um, in whatever pit, yeah, whatever year we're talking about, um, is, is very much sort of concerned with staying alive. Um, and normally the best way of doing that is if you trust your commander, which is the key thing, um, is to sort of act as a cohesive body of 
soldiers that's going to sort of get through this together. And I think this idea of sort of small team motivation is, is really important, but also it's crucial that Wellington and Napoleon themselves actually inspire their um, soldiers um, somehow. Um, and I think there's a quite a distinction there in terms of Napoleon, um, Napoleon sort of, you know, all, all very famous in terms of how motivational he was um, and sort of loved by his um, soldiers. Um, you know, not all of them clearly, but um, he was a very inspiring figure and Wellington very much um, had a different approach in terms of, I think he was very much respected by his soldiers and that, that, that he'd sort of look after their interests and he was someone that would, you know, ha and had a track record eventually of winning. Um, and so that they were, he was a safe bet to be in his army and that would hopefully mean he stayed alive. And um, there's two quite different approaches in terms of motivating the soldiers. Um, and, but, but both had the same sort of end goal of trying to, to motivate them to, to fight and beat their adversary. So I think there are similarities and differences. It's funny, I was writing about exactly that this morning in preparation for the podcast that went out for folks who are listening um, at the start of Wellington Month, but which for us at this moment in, in time is um, yet to, to be released and recorded, um, such as the kind of the, the winds of time that uh, podcasts operate and record in. Wellington, he's an aristocrat. He's raised under the Ancien Regime. He was unashamed Let's, let's be frank, in his disdain for the lower echelons of society. Uh, and he was deeply invested in the old order, wasn't he? Um, what was his training like as an up-and-coming officer? Um, yeah, I mean, very uh, kind of typical in some ways of some of the other senior commanders um, of the period or in, in the British Army, um, and, but also um, unique in, in other ways. Um, obviously, Wellington himself um, went to Eton um, and then attended uh, military college in Anjou in France, um, sort of famously, and that sort of meant to have turned him around in his attitude around um, and sort of taking soldiering um, more seriously. Um, but there are obviously a number of similar colleges across um, Europe that you know, various other military commanders attended during the period. Um, my PhD sort of looks at some of these in terms of the the junior officer, junior officer education, um, and, but it's important to note at this period there wasn't the equivalent of Sandhurst um, for a junior officer, um, and that only sort of came about in 1802 for for the British. So Wellington was a bit unusual in terms of going um, abroad and studying at a military college. And um, as I say, various other senior commanders of the period did actually do that. So um, his training. Um, was sort of limited in, in that sense of uh, attending a, a bit of an education at uh, a junior military college. But then his training was very much sort of on the job, I guess. Um, obviously, he gets commissioned in 1787. Um, and I, when I was looking at um, ready for this, I was just looking um, a bit back through Wellington's life. And it, I think it's amazing to think and sometimes can be forgotten that he did have seven years um, as an officer before he deployed overseas um, in 1794. Um, and obviously he went through the ranks and he was already a lieutenant colonel by the time he deploys. But that is seven years of being in that environment and living the lifestyle um, of, a tip of, of a typical officer in that period. Um, obviously because of his family background, he becomes ADC to Lord Buckingham, um, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, um, and obviously is based in Dublin um, for, a, for a period. Um, and But this really gives him some good insight into how the army 
and the military works um, and how it links to the political level as well, which I think is a key um, trait of Wellington's command is really linking what he's doing in the military world to the broader sort of political considerations of the period, um, you know, either on campaign or, or later um, after his, you know, after 1815 when he is very much more on the political side of things. Um, but all the way through his career, there's always this link between politics and the sort of military profession. Um, and I think his seven years um, before he even goes abroad does actually give him some insight into that. Um, so uh, yeah, an interesting build up before he ever deploys um, on active service. Yeah, I, I really like what you say that This is something that comes across really well actually in Rory Muir's biography how the two, the political and the military careers are actually utterly intertwined the whole way through. So he's an MP in the Irish Parliament and then subsequently a, an MP at Westminster um, for, for much of this period. Seven years before, seven years from commission to becoming Lieutenant Colonel isn't a long time, surely in, in the grand scheme of, of uh, training for the role of leading what nominally might have been a thousand men on a battlefield. How, I mean, I'll tell you what you say, yes, much better to have had that rather than just kind of being, being thrown in at the deep end. But how much do you think he took away from that process and how much of it was just sort of scramble up the ladder, I've got duties with my Lord Lieutenant. And, and so therefore is Wellington's aptitude that he demonstrates on the battlefield just raw talent or does he take the military side of his career more seriously and preference that in terms of his priorities? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, just in, in terms of comparison to, um, you know, modern day sort of soldiering, seven years is a fair amount of time to have, um, you know, spent, if that's your full-time job, um, learning how to do, you know, the military profession, etc. So I think, there is something to be said that it's a fair amount of time and you know he he is only commanding a battalion um which yeah okay that is a, th a thousand men or 500 more realistically and suddenly on operations and clearly um he hasn't had that experience of overseas service or active service so i take take your point there in terms of um he is suddenly going into the deep end um and you know these days you wouldn't you wouldn't find someone just suddenly um in that position having never sort of served um abroad um, in any sort of capacity. So I think um, it's interesting to reflect on that, but I think he would have certainly taken away um, the sort of interior economy of how to sort of run a battalion. Um, and, you know, as I say, the, I think the most fascinating aspect is this idea of linking what he's doing as a military professional to the political level. And so he'll have certainly gained um, a lot and, and also more than some others, some others that were his contemporaries in terms of understanding that. Um, due to his, the, the influence of his family. So I think the two things of sort of building up a, a steady understanding of how the military just work themselves and how to sort of administer, you know, a company or a battalion um, would have been key in, the, in that period. And then also this idea of um, linking to the, the political level um, will have really stood him in good stead for um, campaigns in the future that we see him um, undertaking. And you've mentioned, or you've kind of alluded to this already, that very early in Wellington or Wellesley's, well, actually, he's actually Wesley yeah. um, at that point, still, I, I believe, um, at an early stage in his career, whatever you want to 
whatever name you want to give him. Um, he's involved in that pretty shambolic campaign that goes to the Low Countries under the command of the Duke of York. What kind of impact do you think that that had on his approach to the business of commanding? Because it's very easy to draw a direct line from what went wrong there to what Wellington then gets right. But that's perhaps too easy of a connection to, to draw. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a number of interesting uh, points about the, the campaign to low countries in the in the 1790s. Um, yeah, like, as we were just kind of saying, Wellington is commanding officer um, of the 33rd and he um, has really good experience of actually um, you know, commanding a battalion, which is a, a sort of self-contained entity um, on that campaign and actually seeing um, active service um, as well as um, serving with a number of officers that would come back to be um, you know, crucial um, senior figures in his army later on. Um, obviously, Sherbrooke's very famous for being his second in command in the 33rd, um, but also from, from my own interest, sort of George Murray, who becomes his quartermaster general, um, they almost um, certainly came, well, they will have come across each other. How well they got to know each other is is difficult to actually tell, but they were certainly serving together. Murray was in the Third Foot Guards um, at the same time that Wellington or yeah, Wesley was in the 33rd, um, but they were in the same parts of the country and in the same actions. So um, he came across a lot of uh, key figures and um, that would come back later on um, to be um, key relationships uh, for Wellington. But yeah, this, this idea though of seeing um, a disastrous campaign is an interesting one. Um, as you say, this, this idea of learning what not to do is, um, you know, he probably didn't say, but he certainly sort of um, take, took an understanding of um, how campaigns could go um, drastically wrong. And I think um, that was an important experience for him, but also more importantly for the British Army uh, more generally in terms of reforms to the army that Wellington was less, well, actually opposed to some of them, but he was certainly less involved in reforming the army um, and other key figures that served in that campaign um, became key reformers of the army. And so I think Wellington certainly profited from the idea more generally that the British Army um, didn't perform um, particularly well for a number of reasons um, in the Low Countries. Um, and also I think another, another key aspect for, for Wellington personally is this idea of the importance of allies and coalitions um, and how to sort of operate in those. And obviously we see that um, throughout his career, um, whether it's sort of um, India or the peninsula or Waterloo and um, the Hundred Days, he, he's often or always sort of reliant on others um, as well as the British Army. And I think um, the Low Countries gives everyone, including Wellington, um, a good experience of the difficulties, but also um, the sort of value of working together um, with a coalition. And um, if you can get that right, things um, can turn out um, well for you against um, the, the French Revolutionary Army in this period, um, whereas if you're not willing to work with others, um, you're going to struggle. So I think there are a number of ways in which the British Army overall um, learnt from the campaign, but also Wellington himself clearly took um, a lot from experiencing um, war firsthand for the first time, um, and especially this idea of working as a coalition um, against the French, which would be a reoccurring theme throughout his, his active career. Yeah, there are plenty out there who would like to kind of make out that Wellington fighting with allies was somehow a bad thing. Um, but <laughs> that's a rabbit hole that perhaps we should probably avoid um, in case we 
start offering some rude opinions about the the validity of of such an argument. Um, <laughs> Wellington really makes his name in India. That's that goes without saying. And there's that famous incident at Waterloo where you know Wellington's only an India general. He's only a sepoy general. This that makes him a second-rate commander. Not true, as I've discussed in, in some detail with Josh Proven, but what is it about operations on the subcontinent that were kind of arguably unique or at the very least different compared to campaigning in Europe? Yeah, I, th um, I think it's, it's quite a difficult question that in terms of there's certainly a lot of similarities, um, but, you know, there, there are uh, some unique things. I mean, especially the distance from, I mean, just geographically from Britain that um, the, the British are operating or the East India Company is operating as well. Um, and so when Wellington um, does find himself out in India, um, this idea of being it, holding independent command, both sort of you know, for the first time in, in the sense of being commanding, you know, general officer commanding, um, but also the, the geographical remoteness um, of that command um, is something that is you know, unique to serving in India and, you know, more unique. Okay, obviously he has independent command in um, Portugal and Spain, but that's much um, geographically closer to, to Britain. So I think, um, the, yeah, the main unique thing, I think, um, is this idea that he was suddenly, um, yeah, because of his family connections, placed in a position of um, very sort of isolated command, um, essentially. Obviously he was working with other senior commanders um, in that theatre, but he... Um, suddenly finds himself as the commander um, without really relying on very many other people um, in the middle of, of, of nowhere, essentially. So I think that that's important um, for developing his style um, and understanding of command because he sort of has nowhere else to go. He's very much um, the person in command out there. Um, but yeah, I think there are also a lot of similarities and lessons that he sort of, and experiences that he builds on um, from fighting in India. Um, and you, you can see a lot of these in the Peninsula War later on in terms of fighting in a, in, in a difficult and sometimes remote climate, um, all the issues of supply um, that are apparent in India. And then obviously um, sort of famously he sort of has to deal with in the Peninsula and all the sort of usual things about the importance of battles and sieges um, and sort of manoeuvre um, are, are all important. And also like we were talking about earlier, sort of motivating, how do you motivate your army um, to sort of follow you and trust you in battle. And I think Wellington cutting his teeth in India is absolutely crucial for him to sort of understand how to do this. And we see um, a lot of this then translating into his fighting in Europe um, later on. Okay, so let's, let's dive in with the big one, shall we? <laughs> when it comes to Wellington, as everyone knows, it's the Peninsula War. Talk us through how he goes about his business on campaign. I mean, he is a meticulous individual, to, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah no, I mean, obviously. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Very famous um, series of campaigns in the peninsula that the Wellington um, commands and obviously completely uh, cements his name as, as the leading commander uh, for the British, certainly, um, and you know, renowned across um, Europe and the world. So um, obviously absolutely crucial. And, um, I, but I think in terms of the way he goes about um, his business, uh, I think the key, the key things are he's, he's very calculating in how he's going to conduct these campaigns. And I think it's worth highlighting the fact that um, it's very easy to sort of generalise um, our, our Wellington's approach um, during the peninsula, but each of the different campaigns he finds himself in um, as we roll through the different years of the peninsula, um, circumstances um, from an, a number of angles of all sort of constantly shifting. And so his approach has to shift um, with these. And I think this is really part of his genius is how he can deal with these different circumstances in different ways. Um, and he doesn't have a sort of necessarily consistent way of um, doing things, um, but deliberately so, so he can make the most of um, the opportunities and the sort of areas where he's strong and the enemy are weak, um, etc. So I think, yeah, he's very calculating and he's, he's very much an opportunist um, and he's very good at calculating risk um, and working out when to you know, go on the offensive, when to go on the defensive um, and when to you know, take a bit of a punt and a bit of a risk and when to play things a bit more safe and thinking about the long term um, picture. Obviously, very famously, you have the lines of Torres Vedras, um, which are sort of planned and well in advance of him using them. Um, but there are many other occasions as well where the, the sort of long-term planning of what he's he's going to do. So, um, yeah, this idea of calculating risk, I think, is absolutely crucial to understanding Wellington and the sort of range of operations um, and and the different circumstances he finds himself in um, during the Peninsula War. And as you kind of said, supply is absolutely his number one priority, or it's always struck me as, as his number one priority notwithstanding the fact that there are huge challenges for him out there, not least the absence of money. The troops are six months in arrears. Okay, that's not technically a supply per se, but the fact they haven't got money really doesn't help the situation because their rations are meagre at the best of times. The fact they're not getting the pay means they can't supplement the rations. The rations, sometimes they're they're, they're there, he does his best, but there are other times when they're just they're just not getting the food that they need, right? Mm. So what's Wellington's role within that? Is that really Wellington or is it other individuals who are responsible for that? Yeah, no, it's obviously um, a big and interesting question and my my PhD sort of goes um, into that quite a lot. So, um, I mean, supply itself is is quite an interesting topic. Um, And one of the things I always say is about the, the word about, you know, logistics as a word isn't invented until after the Napoleonic Wars, um, as Jomini sort of coins that phrase. And I think that's quite a good representation of the mindset around supply and logistics during the period, because it, in the British army, but also across many other armies, it's not a sort of centralized idea. You, you already mentioned about the money side of things, um, but also sort of you know, ammunition 
uh, would be the sort of warden of ordinances um, responsibility, whereas um, food and fodder would be the commissariat, um, and then other types of supply, um, camp equipment, for example, would be the quartermaster general's department, um, but then also uniforms, etc., where the adjutant general's department. So very different concept of a centralised idea of supply um, that comes out, you know, after the Napoleonic Wars, um, certainly in the British Army. And I think Wellington has to try and get a grip of this and sort of have a understanding of all the different um, avenues of different types of supply. And he very much sort of uh, does supervise um, how things are being run, but but also um, from a sort of from from my own research and um, the Quartermaster General's Department and the development of um, its role throughout the period. And we already mentioned the 1790s campaign. That's a, a key um, campaign for the Quartermaster General's Department and leading to reform of it by the scientifics in the British Army. And they're very much crucial as well um, as Wellington. But there's a whole there's a whole obviously department of that of those officers rather than just one individual who aren't just dealing with their own issues of supply of camp equipment, um, but also coordinating all the other types of supply and how those get delivered to the troops. Um, but clearly there are, are many instances throughout the peninsula where supply runs very short, um, and, you know, various um, and all, all specific types of supply run short. Um, and this can cause um, considerable problems. Um, but, but Wellington himself is obviously and kind of famously um, very on the button in terms of supervising what people are up to and um, doesn't sort of suffer fools gladly um, if, if they get something wrong. So um, I think Wellington was absolutely crucial in terms of making sure the issue of supply was dealt with. Um, but it's also important to appreciate um, that reforms in the staff system um, really helped um, this. And Wellington, in my opinion, can often get a lot more credit um, than he necessarily deserves. Um, but also mainly because um, it wouldn't be within the realms of one person to to be dealing with all of these um, matters for especially towards the end of the peninsula when his army um, increases so much in size um, and obviously has to rely on others to um, actually deal with these issues of supply. Shock horror we haven't given credit to Wellington for literally every single thing that happens in his army <laughs> over the course of the peninsula war it's almost like we're being nuanced and subtle and discerning in our judgments this this really can't be allowed to go on um so we've talked about wellington on campaign what about wellington on the battlefield we have spent or will spend uh, a great deal of time depending on where people are and listening to the sequence of these episodes um a lot of effort basically has gone into this month in terms of bashing the idea that wellington was a defensive general now he wasn't a defensive general and people can argue with me until the end of time i won't accept that he was a defensive general because he just wasn't but if he wasn't one of those, what type of general would you say was he? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, yeah, with the idea about the defensive general is obviously, yeah, um, not correct. And uh, I think it's sort of well known that amongst um, historians of the period, and that's not correct. And it's very much a thing that comes out of Waterloo and, yeah, how famous that battle is. Um, that obviously, he, he's sitting on the defensive there for, for valid reasons. I mean, obviously there are other, other battles as well, but um, I, th I think it really goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of him being very calculating um, and working out when to, to be on the offensive and when to be on the defensive. Um, and, and also I think when you talk about on the battlefield in terms of the tactical level, sort of using um, the assets that he had um, and the British army had sort of 
built up um, prior to and during the Peninsula War, um, all of which are sort of well known and, and written on in terms of you know, um, a heavy use of skirmishes and the skirmish line to soften up the enemy and the reliance of sort of the firepower of the line versus the French column. Um, and you know, Wellington very clear on his direction for the artillery, not, not to engage in sort of counter battery fire. So there's all sort of very sort of small tactical issues um, that Wellington oversees and makes sure his army is sort of pulling together to work um, towards. And I think this is really important when we talk about on the battlefield and at the tactical level um, to the Allied success um, in the peninsula. And obviously this translates um, very strongly into the Portuguese army um, and to a certain degree, partly to the Spanish army, but um, you know, they sort of, especially when they're working with Wellington um, from 1813 onwards. Um, so I think, yeah, clearly he wasn't just a defensive general um, and he sort of was good at calculating when to be on the offensive and when to be on the defensive. Um, and there are very many sort of very good examples of battles in which he suddenly makes um, the key decision at the key time. And obviously there's the, the famous idea of him being on the spot um, during a battle often risking um, his own life in, in the process um, and very, you know, very nearly being um, killed on a number of occasions, um, which I think was absolutely crucial to his success. Um, you know, being on the spot to, to direct things where possible um, was absolutely um, crucial to you know, the whole idea of motivating the soldiers, but also to timing um, the battle and making sure that things happened at the right time um, to sort of all, all come together and help defeat um, the French on, on numerous occasions. I'm, I was going to pick up on exactly that point, actually. To what extent is that Wellington as the micromanager? To what extent is that Wellington as just a brave individual who knows how to get the most out of his men? Um, and to what extent is that just kind of almost being brave to the point of being a little bit dumb in terms of placing yourself in harm's way? And there's a very different philosophy of command, partly because of the size of armies during this period. Um, but yeah, it is that, I mean, it's not like Britain doesn't have a succession of commanders who are killed in the moments mm. of victory, vis-a-vis mm. -vis Moore, Abercrombie, Wolfe. Um, so is, is this just a tradition? What's the, what's the rationale behind it? Or is it a combination of all of them? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think mainly, as you uh, said at the end there, in terms of there were a lot of commanders that are killed um, in the heat of battle, um, and you know, not just uh, during the Peninsula War or, or even the Napoleonic Wars, but as you mentioned, sort of commanders beforehand, um, but also you know, right up until um, you know, the Second World War and beyond in terms of needing to be at, on the spot to make these key decisions. And Wellington was very much um, of that school of doing things, um, but out, not, not just to show that he was being brave, but out of necessity to to make sure um, he could um, oversee victory. And it, coming back to our initial discussion on Wellington um, and Napoleon's approaches, um, Napoleon clearly was himself in danger on, on a number of occasions, um, especially when he was more junior, but he, even when he was um, more senior. Um, but Napoleon had very different considerations in terms of he was um, you know, the commander of not just the army, but the French empire, etc. So him risking his life was quite different to Wellington as just an army commander um, in the field where his duty was very much to oversee um, his army being victorious. And you know, if he fell in, in the process, someone else was expected to step up to the plate. So he's very much a sort of product of his time. And I think, and also the, 
you know periods beforehand where commanders were were often killed um in the front line i think wellington was just incredibly lucky in a number of senses to escape with his life um i mean again linking it back to the staff um a number of his staff that are riding close to him are, are killed throughout the peninsula war um and then obviously at waterloo famously um a very high proportion of his staff um are killed uh, or you know wounded or mostly wounded around him so um i think he's you know it's, it's not um unfair to say he was just incredibly lucky um and but he, he saw that approach as um, necessary and i think that was a key aspect um, of why he was so effective um as a commander i'm often struck that um one of the commanders that comparison that one of the british commanders where comparisons are made is more um and more is sometimes compared quite unfavorably to wellington i'm not always convinced that that comparison is a valid one not least because more um, makes some mistakes in the course of what becomes the Corinna campaign, but also has a pretty impossible situation in the sense that when the French come pouring back into the heart of Spain in that kind of winter of 1808, the Spanish armies are kind of knocked to the four winds, and there isn't a huge amount that can really seem to be done. So what was your stance on this? Do you do you think that the unfavorable comparison is fair? Um, yeah, no, I, I think um, I agree with you in the sense of um, I think it is unfair uh, to be particularly critical of Moore, um, and it you know it'd be one of those very interesting what ifs um, to actually work out what Wellington himself um, would suggest. He, well, you know, that, I mean, obviously you could go into that in terms of uh, what what he would have actually done differently, um, but. Um, you know, it was a very difficult set of circumstances that led to the retreat to Corona and more had to deal with that. But I think, and, I, and I'm very interested in the campaign uh, from a staff perspective as well and how um, they function. It's absolutely crucial to the development um, of the staff system during the period. Um, but I think Moore and Wellington are certainly very different commanders. Um, yeah, Moore is much more sort of um, you know, loved by his men almost. And as we mentioned earlier, Wellington's more respected. Um, and in terms of the specifics with the staff, um, Moore is much more willing to hand over authority and responsibilities to his staff um, to sort of help with the direction of the army. Whereas Wellington, um, especially when he comes back in 1809, um, is very much of the old school where commanders will do this business. And um, yeah, he's reluctant for staff officers um, to be given new responsibility, which is being asked for by the scientifics, um, as they're called in the British Army. So they have two very different approaches, um, but I'm certainly, a, you know, in agreement that I think Moore can come in for some unfair criticism um, of what he was meant to have done in those circumstances, and and also conversely, you know, if you really dug down, Wellington can be brought in for criticism on a number of occasions um, for how campaigns develop um, or some of the decisions he makes. So um, it's a different, it's a difficult one to compare the two, and they have different approaches. Um, and clearly Moore's killed, so there's not much to go on after that period, um, whereas Wellington um, obviously rises to, to prominence throughout the Peninsula War afterwards. So it's a difficult one, um, but I agree that I think Moore can come in for unfair criticism. Yeah, 100%. Wellington has his kind of equivalent of a coronary retreat, doesn't he, in, in the autumn or to winter of 1812. And conditions there were, according to some observers, worse than yeah. what they experienced during the Corona retreat 
um, yeah. and, and the problems were, were certainly huge. So, yeah, absolutely. Wellington makes his mistakes, um, whether or not um, the, the, the two equate is something that's, that's almost sort of academic, isn't it, in terms of, of which is which. I'm not sure that those experiencing either would have really cared to, to make too much of a comparison because it's all pretty horrific. But yeah, um, let this not be a, a Colt Wellington session. Uh, in this episode yes Wellington makes his mistakes and that brings us on quite nicely to what I wanted to talk about next which is the those general failures of, of Wellington um, when it came to his style as a commander not least that refusal to delegate is that paranoia on his part or is it his kind of is his is his micromanaging kind of justified yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting one, this idea of him, whether whether he delegates or not, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, the, the idea about having a second in command, I think, is also a very interesting debate, which um, often is directed at Wellington not not being willing to have a second in command. But it, it's important to realise that, um, you know, the Duke of York, the commander in chief, um, as well as a number of other political figures and military figures um, and you know, the army headquarters um, at Horse Guards was absolutely crucial to appointment. So um, for Wellington not to have a second in command um, or designated one wasn't just down to Wellington. And there are periods throughout, um, you know, throughout this period where there is a second in command appointed to di different armies, but also where there aren't second in commands appointed. So that can be um, problematic. But I think certainly Wellington um, very much did dominate headquarters and also his subordinates. Um, I think been interesting for me um, this year having done quite a lot of work on the Second World War and looking at Montgomery and I've been sort of struck this year this year um, reading up on all of that how there are a number of sort of similar traits between the two um, in terms of being quite difficult um, individuals with difficult characters um, and sort of yeah this idea of not um, suffering fools gladly and not not being afraid to sort of um, have a serious go at someone or even try and get people or effectively getting people sacked. So this idea of them being quite difficult is, is a, a theme that makes them um, good commanders in a, in a lot of senses, but also very difficult to get on with. Um, and I think it's actually a, a key part of Wellington's trait is he manages to drive his subordinates and drive his headquarters um, through being a difficult individual. Um, but also that, that means he gets results. Um, and perhaps going back to our conversation just before, um, had more carried on throughout the Peninsula, he would have certainly had a very different approach um, to that, um, a much more sort of collegiate approach, I think. Um, and whether that would have worked um, more or less effectively is obviously, as, as we were mentioning, very difficult to actually assess, but certainly Wellington's approach um, works very effectively, um, but he makes uh, a lot of enemies um, in the process within his own headquarters and um, his own subordinates. Um, but also it's important to realise during this period, it's quite difficult with the character of war during the Napoleonic Wars to really delegate that effectively, um, mainly because of limited communications um, and you know, relatively small staff systems um, that mean it's quite difficult um, to actually coordinate things um, unless you're sort of within eyesight of them or you know you can send a, an ADC to send a message um, to someone else. So at the sort of tactical level as well, Wellington has to um, try and sort of grip the situation in order to get results um, rather than letting things slip too much and 
and offering too much um, in independence to some of his um, subordinates um, because of the issues that can raise. Um, for me, so Vittoria is always really interesting in that where his, his army sort of expanded considerably by that period um, for that campaign. And obviously um, Vittoria is the, yeah, a, a major battle which he's trying to, to knock out um, a huge part of the French army. And it, because of the size of the operation, um, it, his forces sort of spread out um, more than it had been um, traditionally. And it, it, there are real issues there of how do you actually coordinate a, a much larger army um, without being there in person and um, with every part of that army. And so um, just the nature and the, sort of the, well, the character of war during this period means that Wellington does have to, to dominate and refuse to delegate in some ways um, in terms of that being the most effective way um, of getting the results that he needs to. So I think it's a fair criticism, but also it's a criticism that actually um, was one of Wellington's key traits um, that made him so effective. Um, and also at the end of the day, he was he was having to take responsibility for what he did. So had it all gone wrong, he would have also been the person to have to face the consequences. So um, yeah, it's an interesting point about his um, lack of delegation, but also one which was um, a key asset of his approach to command. Absolutely, and ultimately it, it did get results, even if holistically, you know, perhaps there was more to be gained in, in the longer term by allowing people that, that sort of greater degree of independence. But again, you've got the, the question marks of, well, what would have happened if he had done that? And we, we can never know the answers there. One of the things that we have been discussing throughout the series, and you have kind of alluded to um, right at the start of this, is the extent to which Wellington was or was not an innovator in his opposition to reform. I'm, I find the, the debates that Hugh Strawn kind of advocated in his book a few years back about whether Wellington was stuck in his ways as commander-in-chief and whether that hindered the army's development really interesting and I'm keen to get your stance on it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah I mean well very specifically for my my own research um, and so I'm actually um, just going into now for um, the book because my, my research my, my PhD finished in 18 14 um, took the sort of developments of the staff up to them, but the, the book is expanding that out. Um, it's very interesting, his Wellington's attitudes to the scientifics um, and the ideas of reform in the army. He was very sort of opposed to um, that reform um, and it led to a number of difficulties um, throughout the period and throughout the Peninsula War. Um, and yeah, fa famously Murray, um, his um, quartermaster general, effectively chief of staff um, goes home and. Uh, comes back in 1813 and they have a very different relationship when Wellington comes to appreciate the importance of having um, good staff officers or what, a good sort of chief of staff really um, and also with the expanding size of the army um, it means that um, Wellington has to rely on these um, changes to the staff system that he's very sort of opposed to but interestingly and to go back to your question uh, after um, Waterloo and when he becomes commander-in-chief um, again, he goes back to this idea of not wanting to encourage and, and in a lot of ways sort of taking away a lot of the developments during the period to the staff system um, and the staff college itself is um, very much run down that had been set up to train these officers um, and interestingly we obviously see the Crimean War um, where um, staff procedures especially um, cause a number of controversies during that conflict. So. 
Um, I think he, Wellington was very conservative um, in terms of his outlook um, as a military professional, but also um, you know, politically um, after the period. Um, but this really did affect um, his way and his attitude to the army as commander in chief. So I do sort of go along with this idea that um, Wellington um, did sort of stifle innovation, but also it, in some of Wellington's defense, we have to appreciate that throughout military history, this is a sort of common pattern. Um, war um, forces change and forces reform. Um, and, you know, the Congress of Vienna sort of ushered in a, a huge period of peace, um, you know, compared to the, the previous, um, you know, series of wars that have happened um, across Europe. And so, um, whilst, yes, okay, he may not have been an innovator, and I don't think he was particularly innovative, um, there are obviously areas that he does innovate. Yeah, I mean, you can't just sort of generalise completely. Um, and I'm very much talking specifically from the staff system. But on the other hand, um, this is a pattern that we see throughout military history. So it's not really just Wellington's um, side of things, but I think that's something that many commanders in chief can be seem to be guilty of um, after a, a period of great success. Um, you can sort of rest on your laurels slightly um, and also issues surrounding funding, et cetera, are always reoccurring in terms of that decreasing and the size of the army decreasing after large wars so um it's, it's also a bit of a product of uh, the end of the of the napoleonic wars and and the product of wellington being so successful himself in the field um that you know a, a good field commander and a good commander in chief aren't necessarily the same thing um and i think it can be a fair criticism of wellington that he well he was clearly a very very effective field commander um, and it's a bit more questionable um his approach as commander-in-chief um, and his results there. So I think there's definitely a sort of discrepancy between those two things, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm going to finish by being incredibly mean and putting you on the spot here. <laughs> we talked about comparisons between Napoleon and Wellington at the top of the episode. So to bring it full circle, <laughs> Napoleon or Wellington, who's better? And I'll let you choose the parameters on how to measure who and, and by what measure one of them is better, but who comes out on top for you? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a difficult question. Um, and similar to a few things we mentioned in the episode, it's difficult to compare like with like with things. Um, it, it's a difficult one. I think Napoleon, despite all of his flaws, um, is a great military commander um, on campaign, etc., and defeats various countries um, outright. But there again, Wellington has an excellent track record um, and so both are very good uh, military commanders and I'm going to go with Wellington <laughs> having trying to think up the top of my head but I think comes back to and I think this is crucial and um, you know anyone dealing with uh, military topics or war studies etc will always um, you know they'll probably roll their eyes when I say about Clausewitz's um, famous uh, phrase about uh, war being sort of politics or policy by other means and I think this is absolutely crucial to measuring um, how good a sort of military commander is, is relating military success to the political level. And I think Napoleon's ideas were fundamentally flawed in terms of what was the end state or realistic end state that he was going for. Um, and it was inevitable that, because um, he just needed to keep creating war, um, that that end state was very difficult to achieve um, and obviously led to his downfall. Whereas Wellington was much more realistic about, and also, as I said, it's difficult to compare the two in, in a lot of ways, but he, he was operating in a more limited way. But 
Wellington did manage to translate um, what he was doing as a military practitioner to the sort of political level. Um, and so I'd go with Wellington in terms of um, being able to link, um, yeah, his what he was doing with war in war to um, achieving sort of peace at the end and sort of political end state that he wanted. Um, although that's me very much thinking off the top of my head. Um, so thanks for putting me on the spot there. <laughs> oh, that's an absolute pleasure. I do like to to make my guests sweat for the sake of our listeners. It's really interesting actually because on balance I would and it might even pain me slightly to admit this um, though folks will have already heard it in the the first episode of the series of the two I think Napoleon was probably on balance better I think that and this is just my personal reading um, that Napoleon on his best day could easily have handled Wellington on his best day Um, but that doesn't factor in what you've pointed out and it's a really interesting stance that actually what is your goal in, in waging war? And Napoleon's goal in waging war ends up becoming his his downfall, as as you say, in that he, he's looking for that crushing victory to dictate the peace, and the peace extracts too much, and so that generates further war. Wellington, as you say, he doesn't have that headache. Somebody else wages peace for him, if you will. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting... Uh, point to to caveat that I like that a lot Will it's always a pleasure to have you on the Napoleon Assist thank you so much folks can follow you on Twitter is it at 1815 Fletcher yes that's right yep so folks on Twitter at 1815 Fletcher when your book comes out come back because (laughs) we need to discuss the Quartermaster General's Department not the Commissariat Department (laughs) as I incorrectly attributed you to uh, earlier although you did kind of demonstrate why I get them all confused in my head because ordnance, commissariat, adjutant generals, uh, quartermaster generals, it's, it's, it's all quite complex. Um, so I, I admire you for tackling uh, the, the topic, I really do. But it's been an absolute joy. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, great. Uh, thank you very much, Zach. Um, uh, really good to, to be on and uh, look forward to hearing all the results of Wellington Month uh, when they all come out. I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those of you who don't want to make a regular contribution, which I completely understand, but do perhaps want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist via Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of your tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their generous subscriptions. A particular thanks to my commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Alexandra Lyon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. There are a few perks for supporters, including a discount code from Pen and Sword, and Commander patrons get to influence these themed months. In fact, voting is open for the next themed month right now. So if you want to dictate where this podcast goes in the future, check out the link in the description for more details. Join me in a few days' time when Wellington Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.